0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie.
1: Scripture lesson this morning comes from the remarkable Book of Job. And it's hard to start right in the middle of Job, but I'm going to read these words and then Lori will sort of back up the context behind it in her sermon. I'm reading starting at the first verse of the 23rd chapter of the book of Job. Then Job answered, today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn What he would answer me and understand what he would say to me, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, but he would give heed to me. There an upright person could reason with him, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. If I go forward, he is not there, or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation.
2: As Robin said, we duck into this Bible story about halfway through, and maybe, maybe you know what got Job here, but if not, the opening chapter of the book introduces Job by listing all of his children, seven sons and three daughters, a symbolic number indicating wholeness of ten. And then it goes on, telling us about the rest of his wealth We are told Job has a great number of servants, 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, and 1,000 oxen, and 500 she-asses, which I just wanted to say in the pulpit. (laughs) Job is called greater than any of the sons of the East. This is how the Bible describes the 1%. But Job is also introduced as a man without sin, upright, God-fearing, one who kept himself from evil. He regularly acted as priest, offering sacrifices in case his children had accidentally said or done anything improper. It is a description of domestic harmony and tranquility, extreme comfort matched only by extreme scrupulousness. But the plot thickens quickly. A trial is held to see whether Job is righteous for righteousness' sake. The book of Job is a narrative, a storytelling of the question people have been asking since the beginning. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or another question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Uh, The God piece is usually inserted because People have always needed a way to explain away things that there seemed to be no reason for. And humans have long reasoned that bad things happen to good people because, well, people are just not as good as they appear. And if this is true, then the rest of us can still harbor hope that we, unlike those other heathens, can be good enough to avoid pain and suffering So perhaps we find Job on an ash heap lamenting because Job is just not as holy as he seems. Perhaps his religious devotion is dependent on dividend yield or where the stock market closes. What will happen if everything Job has, he loses? And lose everything he does? One day, as the story goes, A messenger comes running up the driveway with terrible news for Job. All of the oxen have been stolen. And as that messenger was still talking, another one burst in with the news that fire has has come down from heaven, burning up all the sheep and goats, along with the servants tending them. And then before that messenger could finish, another messenger came bearing news that all the camels had been stolen. And before that news had settled, a fourth messenger came with the worst news of all. Job's children, who had gathered at the oldest brother's house, all of them were dead, killed when a great wind caused the house to fall in on itself. There is no word for a parent whose child dies. Children without parents are orphans, and a living spouse whose spouse has died is called a widow or a widower. But no one has ever come up with a word for a parent who outlives a child. The death does not change whether or not one is a parent. So it is no wonder that Job tears his clothes, cuts off his hair, and falls to the ground. This we expect. What else is one to do but collapse? Our hearts, much less our bodies, cannot hold themselves up under such grief and loss. What we do not expect is his response. He says, with nothing I came out of my mother's body, and with nothing I will go there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Let the Lord's name be praised. The text says that in all these things, Job did not sin, and did not say that God's acts were foolish. But still, it is clear, he is grieving deeply. People often say really unhelpful things to other people who are grieving, like, God needed him more than you did. She's in a better place. It's part of God's plan. Or in the case of Job, at least you have your health. This is, of course, what Job loses next. Uh, At least you have your health. Oh, not, not anymore. Because to fully test whether or not Job is righteous, for righteousness' sake, everything must be taken from him. Job is suddenly afflicted by what the text describes as an evil disease, covering his skin from his feet to the top of his head. His wife and three friends find him seated in the dust with a bit of broken pottery, scraping his own skin with the sharp edge of it. At first, they behave appropriately. They took their seats on the earth by his side for seven days and seven nights, but no one said a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. This really is the only thing we should plan to do to comfort the grieving. Sit with them without trying to be profound. It is both the simplest and hardest thing for people to do for one another. After these seven days, Job speaks. He curses the day of his birth. In place of my food, I have grief, he says, and cries of sorrow come from me like water. I have no peace, no quiet, and no rest. Nothing but pain comes on me. Unfortunately, this prompts Job's friends to find their tongues. They say a number of things over the course of 20 chapters that are incredibly laborious to read, including the recommendation that if Job has nothing nice to say, he shouldn't say anything at all, and they eventually insinuate that Job has actually done something to deserve all this. And this is where we pick up the story. As chapter 23 begins, we discover that Job is still destitute. Today also, my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy Despite my groaning, Job feels utterly alone, admitting that he cannot tell if God is real or not. If I go forward, God is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides, and I cannot behold God. I turn to the right, but I cannot see God. We know the feeling, Job. If Job were alive today, He would have been taken to task for his honesty by people one of my professors call happyologists, those who would have us believe that we can control our life circumstances just through positive thinking. It's generally peddled by preachers of the so-called prosperity gospel, the idea that health and wealth are entitlements of the most faithful, and access to these divine rights is a matter of simply speaking them into existence. Dr. Brent Strawn explains how happyology and the prosperity gospel works using the example of Joel Osteen, who is perhaps the most influential and successful representative of the prosperity gospel peddlers. Early in the very first chapter of his book, Every Day a Friday, How to Be Happier Seven Days a Week, Osteen writes, We prepare for victory or defeat at the very start of each day, When you get up in the morning, you have to set your mind in the right direction. You may feel discouraged. You may feel the blahs, thinking, I don't want to go to work today, or I don't want to deal with these children, or I've got so many problems. If you make the mistake of dwelling on those thoughts, you are preparing to have a lousy day. You are using your faith in the wrong direction, Turn it around and say, this is a great day. Something good will happen to me. God has favor in my future, and I'm expecting new opportunities, divine connections, and supernatural breakthroughs. When you begin each day in faith anticipating something good, God tells the angels to go to work and arrange things in your favor. He gives you breaks, lines up the right people, and opens the right doors. Faithfulness, according to happyologists, is defined as anticipating something good and using your faith in the right direction, as defined as expecting goodness, prosperity, health, and the realization of one's dreams. Said faith leads directly to God's telling the angels to get to work, and favor the faithful individual, never mind that this turns God into little more than a lapdog, subject to every human whim, as long as it is positive. And it's not simply about being positive, it's also about not being negative at all. Osteen goes on, Whenever we speak something, either good or bad, we give life to what we are saying. People don't realize they are prophesying their futures, Negative thoughts may come to your mind, but don't make the mistake of verbalizing them. The moment you speak out, you allow them to take root. Osteen has seemingly endless examples about how this works. The baseball player who went from being a winning pitcher to being a losing one, when, after moving to a new field, he made the mistake of complaining that the left field fence was too close. Or the maintenance man, who always reported on what was broken, who got sick and died at just 55 years old. If only this maintenance man hadn't talked so much about everything he had to fix. He could have lived a long life and enjoyed his retirement. If I thought Osteen actually read the Bible, I might... (laughs) I might expect Osteen to use Job as another one of these examples, given Job's speech. Today, also, my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy. Osteen would no doubt label that negative prophecy and advise Job to turn that frown upside down. But Job is Joel Osteen's worst nightmare. Job never runs from the rage, disbelief, and grief that he experiences. He rejects the harmful theology that God is a cosmic puppeteer. And this makes all the difference. At the end of the book of Job, it is God who twice says, My servant Job has spoken of me what is right And it is this kind of speech that matters. It is Job's painful, honest, gut-wrenching, full of grief, name-the-darkness speech, which is commended by God as right, firm, and true. It is not just Job who affirms this. We hear it in the multitude of laments in the book of Psalms. The psalmists do not reach a place of new life by means of denying their very real, very difficult, and often very unjust circumstances, but precisely by voicing them. To operate in denial of these real, often volatile, emotions, which is what happyologists recommend, is not only untrue to the psalms, it is downright duplicitous, if not pathological, It may even be evil, according to the Psalm 73, that the only people to enjoy a life free of pain are the wicked, or in the words of Tal bin Shahar, the only people who don't experience normal, unpleasant feelings are psychopaths and the dead. And the psychologists in this church would have me remind us all, don't forget science, A large body of data shows it is precisely the articulation of painful emotions that facilitate healing and health, whereas the inhibition of those emotions lead to disease and dysfunction. The prosperity gospel faces as much resistance from the New Testament as it does in the Hebrew Bible. Can you imagine what advice Osteen would have given Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Buck up, buttercup! And this is the anti-gospel. Jesus says so. When Jesus says that he will suffer many things and be put to death, Peter corrects him. God forbid, don't talk like that. And according to the prosperity gospel, Peter is giving the right advice, telling Jesus not to verbalize such negativity. But Jesus sets Peter straight. Get behind me, Satan. Easter is possible only after Good Friday. Joy comes in the morning, but only after a long night of grief, and not because we pretend that we are not suffering, not because we ignore reality. Rage, disbelief, grief, maybe you've heard that they don't belong in church or in the spiritual life, but they do, for the Bible tells us so. It's interesting to note that when Job says to his friends, today also my complaint is bitter, the word translated bitter also means rebellion, so that Job says, Today also, my complaint is my rebellion. Like the prophet Jeremiah, he does not say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. No, in the face of injustice, calamity, and chaos, Job refuses to pretend everything is hunky-dory. No, it is not fine. No, things are not as they should be. So he protests. Job's complaint is rebellion against the idea that any of us deserve pain and suffering, that God expects us to just take it. And Job models what Jesus eventually says is an imperative, to speak out and act against injustice in both our personal and political lives. I I repeat myself there because the political is personal, Ask any American of color, ask women, ask gender, transgender men and women who just need to go to the bathroom. So many of us are full of rage, disbelief, and grief at the way things are. Rage over the patriarchy that oppresses women, keeps even the most progressive of men from stepping out of line, and forces people to hide from their workplace that the one they love is their same sex. Disbelief that Betty Shelby, the white police officer who shot and killed Terrence Crutcher, an unarmed black man, would be put in the classroom to teach officers how to survive the Ferguson effect, which she defines as the after effects of being accused of shooting an unarmed suspect and named after the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, another unarmed black man. And then there is the grief Grief that two-year-old Fernanda Davila was required to appear in federal immigration court to answer for her undocumented status. A two-year-old in federal immigration court. To this rage, disbelief, and grief, God says, Good. Can you stay with the feeling? For if we do not name it, if we do not hold on to these feelings and then channel them for change, what are we? Certainly not faithful, according to scripture. As the poet advised, do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Our complaint is our rebellion Rebellion against injustice, inequality, against all that isn't right in the world. It is a spiritual discipline. So be angry. Grieve. Be exhausted. Be depressed. Be anxious and worried. God is expecting it. And when you feel like giving up, give up. Then begin again. We are, after all, people of the resurrection. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street,
2: one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.